Welcome to episode one, The Trunk Murderess. My name's Alex LeMay. I also go by Spike, and some of my friends call me Ghost Daddy. Hence the name of the podcast, Ghost Daddy. Listen, I gotta tell y'all a story. I don't know how interesting it's gonna be because I have never done anything like this in my life. So if you want more, let me know and I'll keep doing more. <laughs> Otherwise, this will just go down as the one single episode I ever did. And what better way to start the podcast than telling you about the absolutely wild day I had in attempts to get my blood drawn. It was just a normal day, or so I thought. I can just hear myself talking and it makes me cringe. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes that's just how it is. Today's one of those days. Today's one of those days. <laughs> I pulled up to this location and thought I was in the wrong place. I was double checking Google Maps, trying to figure out where the hell am I? Because it didn't look like a place you got your blood drawn at, at all. It looked kind of like Dracula's castle. I have photos to show you if you're watching the YouTube of the outside of this place. It really doesn't look like somewhere you would get your blood drawn. I literally called them from the parking lot and was like, am I in the right place? <laughs> they were like, yeah. Just walk in past all of the memorial stuff. And I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. What does that mean? So I hung up. I walk in. There's a huge memorial in the front. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. There's oil paintings of a small child, and she's dressed like Bo Peep. She had, like, the little staff. It was cute. And then there was another large oil painting of an older man. There's wrought iron candlesticks, hand-carved wooden benches. There are murals really high up in the vaulted ceilings. It's gorgeous, but what the hell? <laughs> like, it's not at all what I expected. So um, I'm glad she warned me about that because had I walked into that without her telling me, I would have walked right back out and been like, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> so I kept walking into the place, signed in, got taken back. They're about to poke me with a needle. And I asked the lady, what's the deal with this place? I am curious why there are two oil paintings. So I was like, that's interesting. I wonder, maybe it's who owns the building and, you know, rich people do weird shit. Anyways, she goes on to tell me that she's so glad that I asked her because the amount of people that come in here confused no one ever asks. They're just kind of like, okay, and accept it. And I was the first one, I guess, to ask what's going on because it's so strange and it's so out of the blue. This building is sandwiched between a high school, a charter high school, and a sonic drive through Gorgeous, but yeah, it doesn't look like it fits at all. So she goes on to tell me that there's actually a really good story attached to this building and gives me a very short rundown, which was enough to pique my interest that I started digging into it when I got home. I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought there'd be a little bit of scandal, a little bit of jealousy, a couple murders here or there, and that would be it. But it was so layered and such a good story that I had to turn it into a podcast slash YouTube. So... Here we are to talk about it. I've been looking up facts about this specific case, and a lot of it is just hearsay. A lot of it is, you know, just supposed ideas of what actually happened because no one really knows. So I compiled a bunch of facts that I found and came to my own conclusion, and I'm going to share that. Maybe you can come to your own conclusion too with it because it's an unsolved murder. So 
without wasting any more time, let's get into it. This place called Grunro Memorial Medical Center. It's gorgeous. It's like Spanish Revival. It looks like it's all handmade, like beautiful, intricate designs everywhere. The oil paintings in the front belong to the man who built it, the Gunro family. That's the head of the family. And his daughter, she, I believe, died from appendicitis. And they didn't know what it was. And because they couldn't find out in time, she ended up passing. And in her passing, he erected this medical center to help prevent this from happening to other families because it was very tragic and it was very sweet for him to have done that. It's a memorial now and it's still used as a medical building, which is super cool. I love the history of these buildings and was just eating it up as she was telling me. (laughs) So I was like, okay, that's cool. I love that story. Thank you for sharing it with me. She's like, no, it doesn't stop there. There's more. (laughs) I'm like, no way. She's like, yeah. Have you ever heard of the trunk murderess? And I was like, No, no, I haven't. She goes on to tell me about this woman called Winnie Ruth Judd that's known as the trunk murderess, worked there way back in the day. She had a couple of friends that worked with her and there was some scandal, there was some cheating, and she ultimately chopped up the bodies and shipped them to LA. She gave me a very short version of it. And I was like, are you serious? She's like, yeah, there's some crazy murders attached to this place because that girl worked here. I was like, wow. She's like, yeah, you got to go home and look it up. I'm not saying that murderers are cool. I in no way condone violence. I myself am quite a peaceful person. But this lady and her story is so intriguing. Everything about it had me on my toes. I love her story. If she did it or didn't do it. Either way, she deserves her own episode because this shit is wild. Let's get into it. So this episode is about Winnie Ruth Judd the infamous trunk murderess. She was 26 years old when she became the talk of the nation after two of her best friends were found dismembered, packed into trunks and a suitcase, and then sent on a train from Phoenix to Los Angeles in 1931. So this is where the building that I got my blood drawn in comes into play because Winnie Judd worked there as a medical secretary. It's also where she met her two best friends, Anne Leroy, Sammy Samuelson, and a Phoenix lumberman named Jack Halloran. Hopefully I got that right. Try my best. Jack was a wealthy, influential, married lumberman, supposedly dating Winnie, despite the fact that they were both married. Being the playboy that he was, he was known to flirt with everyone, including her two best friends, Anne and Sammy. So the tea was hot. I mean... There's a lot of motive here already. (laughs) He was very influential. Everybody knew who he was. In fact, he owned a lot of the houses, including the duplex that they lived in. Okay, so according to newspaper accounts, October 16th, 1931, Judd went to her friend's duplex, you know, which is like two blocks from me. It's pretty crazy. Where an argument erupted over Jack, of course. So Anne and Sammy were both mortally wounded in this scuffle, and no one to this day is sure if one or two weapons was used, but we do know that Judd got shot in the hand. So there was a gun. Sometime after the shooting, the bodies were cut into pieces with surgical tools, stuffed into trunks, and sent on a train to Los Angeles. Winnie was also on the same train, which I think is so weird. Like, why would you go on the same train as the trunks you're sending these bodies in? Whatever. 
The way in which these bodies were found is what earned her the nicknames um, Tiger Woman and the Trunk Murderess. It basically was like a bloody mess. A railroad worker discovered one of the trunks seeping blood outside of Los Angeles Central Station a few days later, which wasn't too weird because back then there was like an illegal deer meat trade, so it took them a few days before they realized it was human. Basically found the remains with a murder weapon, the 25 caliber pistol, and surgical tools. So they put it all in the trunk, which I feel like is so dumb. Like, why would you do that? That began the search for the killer, which ended less than a week later when Judd surrendered herself to the Los Angeles police in a funeral home. Basically, the press went wild with theories that began circling that she killed her friends out of jealousy. Many people have different ideas as to what happened. Like, maybe Jack was involved. Maybe it was self-defense. Although a car was seen at the day of the murders at the house, there was an attempt in 1933 to try Jack as an accessory to the murder, but it fell through because it lacked real evidence. The jury ultimately voted to hang Winnie. She was convicted on February 8, 1932, and 10 days later, she was judged insane and sent to the Arizona State Hospital. Her story doesn't end there, though. It just gets crazier. So let's talk about her numerous escapes. This woman was impossible to keep locked up. She escaped half a dozen times, which is so incredibly impressive. My favorite escape was by scraps of rags and clothing made into a makeshift rope that she used to escape out of a three-story window. And there's pictures of it. You can find the rope that she used and how high she climbed down. It's wild. So on her last escape attempt, it was said that a friend began working in the hospital and slipped her a key to freedom, but people, you know, it's just all theories still at this point. Her wanted poster looks like somebody took a sharpie, drew on a blank piece of paper, and taped some photos to it. It's it's not the best wanted poster I've seen, um, but you can Google it and see it for yourself. It says, wanted for double murder. Murdered and mutilated two young women in Phoenix, Arizona, October 16, 1931. Miss Judd will no doubt represent herself to be a professional nurse. She has a very pleasing personality, rather slender build, slim legs, and thick hair. I don't get the slim legs part, but <laughs> go off. I don't know. Age 25, height 5 foot 7 inches, weight 125. Wait, it says eyes blue, gray, and large, hair light brown. She fled to San Francisco Bay Area and lived under the assumed name Marion Lane sometime around 1962. She lived and worked for this wealthy family there, and the family had no clue about her real identity. It took seven years for them to find her again, so she was free for all that time. A Phoenix attorney, Larry DeBow, I think it's DeBow, who began representing her years later, is convinced she acted in self-defense. He said in an interview, I don't think it was a matter that she didn't do it, but it was self-defense. Though the women were arguing it was one of the victims who got a gun and began to rage. So he thinks it was either Anne or Sammy that grabbed the gun, shot Judd, and Judd shot back. And then what happened happened. So Larry, who helped free Judd in 1971, said shortly after her death that she paid an excessive penalty for the crime. So basically he's saying that Anne or Sammy shot first, hence Winnie, the trunk murderess, being shot in her hand. He thinks that they missed, they shot her in the hand, she went to shoot them back, ended up killing Sammy, but didn't kill Anne. It's said that Anne didn't die right away, and when she left the house, she told Jack about it, and Jack came back, 
and finished the job basically and that includes cutting them up and putting them into trunks so let's let's keep going with these interviews and what people have said because that's I feel like that probably has some validity to it. I don't know. Larry, who helped free Judd in 1971, said shortly after her death that she paid an excessive penalty for the crime. In 1998, he did suggested that she would have served no more than five years in prison for killing in self-defense. She really was treated poorly, considering. It was such a spectacle. The news just blew it up out of proportion, and she didn't really get much of a fair trial. AZ Central wrote... Although Winnie Judd rarely spoke of the case in her later years, others who have studied it closely came to believe that she acted in self-defense, that she was railroaded by small-town power brokers intent on shielding the supposed involvement of Jack Halloran, the rich playboy. The truth we may never know. Seriously, it just keeps stacking up for me, honestly. After she was found in San Francisco, Larry, her attorney, and Melvin Belly, we're going to go with Belly, I think that's how you pronounce it, a famous criminal defense attorney worked to free her. She was jailed for nearly two years before Larry secured parole December 22, 1971. Winnie stayed in Phoenix for most of the last decade of her life. So Winnie Ruth Judd is pictured here with author Jana Bombersmatch. I don't know how to say her last name either. I think it's Bombers, Bombersbatch. I'm going to say Bombersbatch. Winnie Ruth Judd, pictured here with author Jana Bomberspatch, died quietly in her sleep on October 23, 1998, at a friend's Phoenix home. She was 93. Jana Bomberspatch, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that last name, we're just going to call her Jana. Jana wrote the definitive book on the case and had befriended Judd years after Governor Jack Williams committed her to sentence in 1971. She said her belief is that Judd killed Sammy in self-defense and Jack killed Anne. I'm sure there was a fight. When there's a gun involved, everybody's like, well, we, I have to kill the other person before they kill me. It's always like that. I can't imagine there being one gun in the room and people fighting. It's going to be awful. It's never going to be a good outcome. But Judd's the only one that walked away from that. And we don't really know the truth or what was what actually happened. Janab did an interview with Axios Phoenix and she told them that Jack Halloran had given money to Anne and Sammy in exchange for using their home as a party home. They were upset that Judd introduced him to another woman whom they worried would take his attention and resources. Um, and she went on to say that Winnie recalled shooting Sammy and Anne before Anne knocked her out with an ironing board and she said she woke up next to the bodies. Jana believes that Anne was still alive when Winnie went home and that Jack went back to finish her off after Winnie told him what happened. So to recap here, like we are hearing earlier, there was a fight. We know that Winnie for sure got shot in the hand and I think it kind of tracks a little bit, you know? She got shot at and with a gun being in the room and three ladies mad at each other, I'm sure all hell broke loose and it ended up with Sammy getting mortally wounded and getting shot, but wasn't dead yet. And when Winnie fled, she told Jack about it, and Jack went back and finished the job, which is dark as hell. And I'm sure that's how they ended up in the trunks, because they were trying to figure out how to cover up the incident. So I have read quite a few interviews now where people all believe that this is what happened. They all think that it was in self-defense, 
Um, there are a couple people out there who think that she's completely innocent, that she was just a bystander and Jack is the one that did it all. I have no idea. There is so much going on here. It is so incredibly layered. So the crazy thing is that she's passed since then and nobody knows what really happened. There are so many stories from people that knew Judd. Like at the end of the day, it's all theories. It's all theories because she passed on without really telling anybody what happened. It's kind of unfortunate because I'm going to be thinking about this for some time now. <laughs> Anyways, I'm not going to leave you with just that. So after Winnie passed, more people came forward to talk about her as a positive figure in their lives. And I think it just adds to the layers. So I want to read you that. Um, in her obituary, it said that Judd was remembered as a kind and engaging woman who spent her waning years trying to forget the event that had consumed her life. After her death, former governor Rose Mofford said she found her peace and her peace came from helping others. Mofford first met Judd around 1940 when Mofford was a secretary at the Arizona State Hospital. So they were friends back then, which makes me wonder, did you slip her the key? No, I don't know. But honestly, I'm dying to know. No one's dug in anymore. Like, come on. Uh, Moffer said that Judd had taken care of other patients at the state hospital for years, cooking, cutting hair, even taking the youngster with hydrocephaly under her wing. She was just a stand-up citizen, and people really admired her. Um, if you're curious about the house now, there's a Phoenix attorney named Robert Warnicky who bought it in 2015, saving it from demolition, basically. So according to Phoenix New Times, Warnicky has plans to protect the murder cottage, as it's become known. <laughs> he got someone from the State Historic Preservation Office Review Committee, 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 review committee looking into a historic designation application on the building. So they're trying to preserve it, which is fantastic, and I am going to attempt to get my way in there because I want to know what it's like. The duplex has been a residential building since the 20s. So, among many properties owned by Jack Halloween, the original fixtures survive on both sides of the duplex, including the bathtub, where it said that Ruth had dismembered her friends. I don't want to say I love that, but I kind of love that they're keeping the history alive. Like, I really want to get into that house. I just know it would be a killer investigation to get in there and see if there's any residual energy Honestly, that's such a traumatic event to happen, and then nobody knows the actual truth. I do know in self-defense that I would shoot another person before they shot me. If somebody had a gun in my face and they were about to shoot me, I'd shoot them back too. I would, because that's like, well, either I die or you die. And it's possible that happened. Especially with a gun in the room, and I'm sure they were all fighting and scared. And when you're scared, you do stupid shit. If someone shot at Judd... Even accidentally, that would just snowball into absolute chaos, which it did, and ended up with both girls being cut up and put into a trunk and sent to Los Angeles, which is so fucking sad. <sighs> My heart goes out to their families because I'm sure it probably sucks having their names brought up in these cases, and I totally understand. <sighs> it's a really intense story, and that is how I started my day getting my blood drawn. <laughs> oh, and another update about this location. Someone stole the mailbox recently, which is so interesting. 
The paranormal investigator in me wants to get into that house so bad. I want to experience it. I want to feel the energy. The bathtub is still there. The fact that I've been in Phoenix this long and I had no idea that this even happened is kind of baffling. I do wonder, though, if her friends still haunt that house. And I wonder if they have anything to say. I know it's kind of weird and you shouldn't be trying to solve cases via a ghost box or EVP session, but I like giving spirits or entities the chance to speak for themselves through whatever technology it is that I have. And you just got to take it with a grain of salt because I don't think our technology has caught up to a point where we can safely solve murders based off of an EVP or a ghost box session. I in no way think that that's the way to approach those situations. It would just be very interesting to go in there and feel it out and see what we get. I do hope that Anne and Sammy both are not tethered to that house, and I do hope that they have both moved on and are resting in peace, but I know it's much more complex than that, and I feel like, actually, we'll go into that in another episode. If this case intrigues you in any way, I absolutely suggest going and finding the book. You can find it on Amazon, basically under the trunk murderous. There are documentaries, there are books written, there are documents to be seen and read, lots and lots of photos. It's truly an interesting case, it really is, and you can come to your own conclusion as to what happened. Some more backstory on the Grenroe Clinic. This is the place that I thought a vampire lived in. <laughs> it was built in 1931, and archivists show that the clinic opened with 13 specialists, a laboratory, a research center, radiology department, and a medical library, which was one of the first in the state. It was created in memory of Lois Anita Grenroe. She was seven years old when she passed because of a possible misdiagnosis. Her father, William Grenroe, a wealthy businessman from the Midwest, endowed a million dollars to create it here. It's gorgeous. It's intricate. It's very stylistic. It's known as one of the premier Spanish colonial revival buildings in Arizona, which is pretty cool. It's gone through quite a few additions and expansions since it was built in 1931, but the original building and its facade are the same as it was back then. If you're around downtown, drive by it, check it out, grab something from Sonic. <laughs> make a day of it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and I will try my best to do one every single week, but I can't guarantee it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this one and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. Sources for this podcast and its interviews are from Axis Phoenix, Wikipedia, NPR, and Phoenix New Times. You can follow me on social media at Ghost Daddy Podcast or my personal one, it's Alex LeMay. Thank you!